two weeks ago in chapter 14, and then the week before that in chapter 13, we saw how Paul was working to orient the hearts of the believers, first to each other, and also to the broader world around them. And now, chapter 15, I really see that he's beginning the turn for home, for his ending. You can really feel the way the tone in this chapter is starting to shift. So, here we go. This is Paul closing out toward his final conclusions. Romans chapter 15, and I'll be reading as always in the Phillips translation. We who have strong faith ought to shoulder the burden of the doubts and qualms of others, and not just to go our own sweet way. Our actions should mean the good of others, should help them to build up their characters. For even Christ did not choose his own pleasure, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell upon me. Isn't it helpful sometimes to remember and or realize that our desire for life to always go our way is stupid? No one's life will or is meant to always go perfectly. Otherwise, we never grow as people. But, especially in the context of following Jesus of Nazareth, who flawlessly followed the will of the Father, it is foolish to want life only to go swimmingly. We are wanting to learn to want what He wants, aren't we? We are wanting to conform to His image. Isn't that the idea? And as we watch him find his life, and I really mean that, find the glory of his days in serving anyone and everyone, I think the point for us is to do likewise. To lift up the other guy. To delight to find our place with the nobodies. Put it this way. In Jesus, we mature in the obscure. Let's keep reading. For all those words which were written long ago are meant to teach us today, that when we read in the scriptures of the endurance of men and of all the help that God gave them in those days, we may be encouraged to go on hoping in our own time. May the God who inspires men to endure and gives them a father's care give you a mind united towards one another because of your common loyalty to Jesus Christ. And then, as one man, you will sing from the heart the praises of God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So open your hearts to one another, as Christ has opened his heart to you, and God will be glorified. Isn't it interesting that when they, the original readers of these words, looked back to, quote, words which were written long ago, They were thinking only of the Old Testament? Think about it. These words weren't scripture to them then. They were just words written on parchment from a contemporary believer. They thought of Paul as just another follower of Jesus, which is what makes these last two chapters, in my mind, just a little more poignant. But when I think of endurance, of the Father's care, 
of a mind united towards one another, of a common loyalty to Jesus Christ, of singing from the heart, of opening their hearts to one another as Christ had opened his heart to them. Well, what period of time do you think that I immediately am thinking of? Of course, the opening days of the early church. In fact, wherever you are, I would love for you just to sit back, maybe even close your eyes and listen. Listen. Acts 2, 41 to 47. Then those who welcomed Peter's Pentecost message were baptized. And on that day alone, about 3,000 souls were added to the number of disciples. They continued steadily learning the teaching of the apostles and joined in their fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayer. Everyone felt a deep sense of awe while many miracles and signs took place through the apostles. All the believers shared everything in common. They sold their possessions and goods and divided the proceeds among the fellowship according to individual need. Day after day, they met by common consent in the temple. They broke bread together in their homes, sharing meals with simple joy. They praised God continually, and all the people respected them. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were finding salvation. Then Acts 4.32-35 Among the large number who had become believers, there was complete agreement of heart and soul. Not one of them claimed any of his possessions as his own, but everything was common property. The apostles continued to give their witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus with great force, and a wonderful spirit of generosity pervaded the whole fellowship. Indeed, there was not a single person in need among them, for those who owned land or property would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and place them at the apostles' feet. They would distribute to each one according to his need. Then Acts 5:12 through 16 By common consent, they all used to meet now in Solomon's porch. But as far as the others were concerned, no one dared to associate with them, even though their general popularity was very great. Yet more and more believers in the Lord joined them, both men and women, in really large numbers. Many signs and wonders were now happening among the people through the apostles' ministry. In consequence, people would bring out their sick into the streets and lay them down on stretchers or bed, so that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall upon some of them. In addition, a large crowd collected from the cities around Jerusalem, bringing with them their sick and those who were suffering from evil spirits, and they were all cured. So the word of God, this is Acts 6-7, gained more and more ground. The number of disciples in Jerusalem very greatly increased, while a considerable proportion of the priesthood accepted the faith. Then Acts 9-31, the whole church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria now enjoyed a period of peace. It became established And as it went forward in reverence for the Lord and in the strengthening presence of the Holy Spirit, continued to grow in numbers. And finally, Acts 12, 24. And the word of the Lord continued to gain ground and increase its influence. Now, if you and I were together right now, after hearing all that, Acts 2, 4, 5, 6, 9, and 12, I would sure ask, 
What are you hearing? What are you hearing of those early days that might inspire this day? Let's continue reading in chapter 15. Christ was made a servant of the Jews to prove God's trustworthiness, since he personally implemented the promises made long ago to the fathers, and also that the Gentiles might bring glory to God for his mercy to them. It is written, Therefore will I give praise unto thee among the Gentiles, and sing unto thy name. And again, Rejoice, ye Gentiles, with his people. And yet again, Praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And then Isaiah says, There shall be the root of Jesse, and he that ariseth to rule over the Gentiles, on him shall the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in your faith, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, your whole life and outlook may be radiant with hope. And friends, when you think of the God of hope, by the work of Jesus, filling human hearts with joy, peace, faith, or or historically speaking, first with the Jews, then the Samaritans, then like this section is talking about with the Gentiles, i.e. everyone else, what has been the barometer for, hey, this is working? Like the way of Jesus is spreading. This thing is viable. Uh, What has been the truest marker for the life of the body of Christ? Did you catch it in Paul's wordings? The presence of the Holy Spirit. At Pentecost in Samaria with Cornelius in Ephesus, where the Holy Spirit is, is where it's happening. So actually, for that reason, even though we're not together in person, I just want to stop right now and pray. I want to pray that we would actually receive more of the Holy Spirit, experience more of the Holy Spirit, that our lives would be absolutely carried away and carried by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I think of you at the end of the Gospel of John breathing upon your friends and saying, receive Holy Spirit. And I think of them in that upper room, just praying, going after you, surrendering to you, receiving the Holy Spirit in full measure. I think of Cornelius and his family receiving the Holy Spirit. I think of those 12 in Ephesus who received the Holy Spirit when Paul came through. Lord Jesus, we desire more of your Holy Spirit. Even as I sit here in my bedroom closet by myself recording this podcast, even as my friends are sitting wherever they're sitting, Lord Jesus, would you breathe more of your Holy Spirit into us? We are at best unprofitable servants, especially when we are not filled to the brim with your Spirit. So Lord Jesus, would you fill us more? Would you breathe your very life into us today? Would we hunger for more of your spirit and every day individually on our own just say, Jesus, more, more, more of your spirit, Jesus. So I pray you would be faithful to your promise that the heavenly father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Jesus, we ask more. Thank you for hearing our prayer. 
more Jesus. And it's in your name we pray that prayer that's after your heart. Amen. Let's keep reading along. I'll be starting now. This is uh, verse 14. Let's keep going. For myself, I feel certain that you, my brothers, have real Christian character and experience and that you are capable of keeping each other on the right road. Which I would say, hmm, nice words. Let's keep going. Nevertheless, I have written to you with a certain frankness to refresh your minds with truths that you already know. And I would ask, and what compels Paul in that purpose? We'll we'll keep reading. By virtue of my commission as Christ's minister to the Gentiles in the service of the gospel. There it is. Did you just catch that? That is Paul's literal calling. For my constant endeavor is to present the Gentiles to God as an offering which he can accept because they are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And I would say that right there is Paul's ambition. He goes on, and I think I have something to be proud of through Christ, of course, in my work for God. I am not competent to speak of the work Christ has done through others, but I do know that through me, he has secured the obedience of Gentiles in word and deed, working by sign and miracle and all the power of the Spirit. I have fully preached the gospel from Jerusalem and the surrounding country as far as Illyricum. And by the way, I would describe that last section as really the Apostle Paul sort of looking back over the course of his calling and his ambition. We'll keep reading. My constant ambition has been to preach the gospel where the name of Christ was previously unknown and to avoid as far as possible building on another man's foundation so that they shall see to whom no tidings of him came and they who have not heard shall understand. And I would say at the the end there, sort of, again, ambition. So friends, what was Paul called to? Well, he was commissioned from the very first as Christ's minister to the Gentiles in the service of the gospel. And what became his personal ambition? To preach the gospel where the name of Christ was previously unknown and to avoid as far as possible building on another man's foundation. To present the Gentiles to God as an offering which he can accept because they are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And looking back, How has it gone? Well, Paul has something to be proud of through Christ, of course. Through him, the Lord Jesus has secured the obedience of Gentiles in word and deed, working by sign and miracle and all the power of the Spirit. He has fully preached the gospel from Jerusalem and the surrounding country, i.e. the birthplace of the body, as far as Illyricum, which is, if you were wondering, to the northeast of the Adriatic Sea. And the people who he's called in, both Jew and Gentile, have real Christian character and experience. They are capable of keeping each other on the right road, i.e., they can follow Jesus for themselves. Calling, ambition, and then looking back. That's what I've sort of been thinking about this week. And between you and me, it's where I kind of want to go in our friendship, our kind of mutual discipleship with Jesus as we look ahead to the last chapter of Romans. 
Because as we finish out this chapter, and if you kind of flip ahead in your Bible to the last one, you'll see it's all really about people. The interactions between people, the way people bring life to each other, how people are really at the heart of the gospel. The gospel is for people. So, even though this is a podcast and we might not see each other in the next week or so, I want to give you a piece of homework. Between now and maybe the next time I see you or the next time we talk, I would love for you to write up simply and succinctly what you believe to be your calling in Jesus. What you feel are your ambitions within that calling. And then take a second to look back at how it's been going. Then, in the spirit of chapter 16, I would love, next time I see you, next time we text or write or email, I would love to hear from you. I would love to hear those, that we would encourage each other with our homework. Here's what he's called me to. Here's what I dream of doing. And here's how it's been going so far. That's what Paul did here. I think it would be pretty cool if you and I did that for ourselves. How's that sound? I think we should do it. Okay. We're going to be starting again here. Uh, We're in verses 22 now. Perhaps this will explain why I have so frequently been prevented from coming to see you. But now, since my work in these places no longer needs my presence, and since for many years I have had a great desire to see you, I hope to visit you on my way to Spain. By the way, that's a a potential ministry location that Paul only ever mentions right here in this one chapter, and to which, according to Clement, one of the early church fathers, he actually may have gone. Isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting to think of the parts of Paul's life that we actually don't know? I'll keep reading. I hope also that you will see me on my journey after I have had the satisfaction of seeing you all. Sorry, speed me on my journey, he says, after I have had the satisfaction of seeing you all. At the moment, my next call is to Jerusalem to look after the welfare of the Christians there. The churches in Macedonia and Achaia, you see, have thought it a good thing to make a contribution toward the poor Christians in Jerusalem. And by the way, hold that trip in mind. We're going to come back to it right at the end of the chapter. They have thought it a good thing to make this gesture, and yet really, they received a good thing from them first. For if the Gentiles have had a share in the Jews' spiritual good things, it is only fair that they should look after the Jews as far as the good things of this world are concerned. And I would say, yeah, that's a pretty fair argument. When I have completed this task then, and turned their gesture into a good deed done, I shall come to you en route for Spain. I feel sure that in this long-looked-for visit, I shall bring with me the full blessing of Christ's gospel. Now, my brothers, I'm going to ask you, for the sake of Christ himself and for the love we bear each other in the Spirit, to stand behind me in earnest prayer to God on my behalf that I may not fall into the hands of the unbelievers in Judea, and that the Jerusalem Christians may receive the gift I am taking to them in the spirit in which it was made. Then I shall come to you in the purpose of God with a happy heart and may even enjoy with you a little holiday. Now, what do you think? 
Did Paul get that holiday? Did he get a chance, do you think, to relax after this? After all his travels, his constant persecutions, all these letters, did he take some time for a vacation? Or did he pass near Ephesus and strengthen the faith of the elders and believers from that little fellowship? Did he sail on and get warned by the believers at Tyre, speaking in the spirit, that immense danger awaited him in Jerusalem? At Caesarea, did the old wild-eyed prophet Agabus flat out tell him that he would be arrested by the religious leaders and handed over to the Romans? And in Jerusalem, did that happen? Was he mobbed, beaten, and only barely rescued by a detachment of soldiers? Did a band of conspirators then join a hunger strike willingly unto death until they saw him dead? And did he stand trial in stages, both religious and state, for more than two years after that? Did he actually have to appeal to Caesar himself in order not to be removed back to Jerusalem and certain death? Did he he then take a, a doomed sail across the Mediterranean, nearly dying in a shipwreck after a 14 day hurricane? And did he finally, eventually arrive unto these friends in Rome after all that? So friends, like I talked about before, if Paul had had his way after this letter was posted, here's what might have happened. He would have sailed back, dropped those funds in Jerusalem, enjoyed a little fellowship, visited Rome, gone to Spain, and that might have been it. In other words, If the prayer of verses 30 through 32 was answered as Paul might have wanted it answered, well, then none of the last eight chapters of Acts would have happened. He wouldn't have stood before the crowds, governors, kings, then the emperor, if he hadn't followed the way wherever it went. So personally, and again, this is as I often say, very personal to my experience with Jesus. But when it comes to prayer, especially prayers for the future in all its sort of unknownness, I often personally think of something good old Socrates once said to one of his followers. This is Xenophon writing. He says, Socrates' formula for prayer was simple. Give me that which is best for me. For, said he, God knows best what good things are. To pray for gold or silver or power were no better than to make some particular throw at dice or stake in battle or any such thing the subject of prayer of which the future consequences are manifestly uncertain. In other words, in prayers for our future life, we don't know what we don't know. But friends, we do know the one who knows all. Which makes me absolutely love the last line of this chapter. And this is where we'll close out. The God of peace be with you all. Amen.